would you agree with me on something? Amen? All right, well, let's transition here. You can get your Bibles ready. We're going to be camping out in 1 Kings chapter 19. First Kings chapter 19 is where the story is going to be. Weeks ago, I already told you a little bit about history of the time. I just feel like it's important to understand that. Uh, King Solomon's son was foolish. King Solomon even was foolish at the end of his life. And so the kingdom that God had for his people, the, 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 the kingdom of Israel, was divided into two. Okay, Ten tribes to the north. That was called Israel. And then you had two tribes to the south, which was called Judah. And we talked about some of the kings of Judah, and I'm not going to rehash that. But where I do want to go is, is there a, there's a very well-known prophet that God appointed, and his primary role was to minister to the northern kingdom. And I just think that's a cool part of history because, you know, the southern kingdom was were kings from the line of David that God had blessed and and shown grace and mercy so they could even remain in power. And the northern kingdom had their chance, and they they didn't take it, and so the entire history of the northern kingdom was one evil king after another. And yet, God still saw fit to rise up a prophet. And you'll you'll know the name well, the prophet Elijah. He's the character we're going to be looking at this morning. We're going to look at his story And that background, I think, is just a cool part of history that is no coincidence to me. Uh, Because sometimes, you know, you you might be like that northern kingdom. You might be the one in rebellion. Um, Maybe not. But either way, God will rise up somebody that's willing to minister to you where you're at. And there's hope. There's hope for me. There's hope for my family, my loved ones that go astray. If God would show mercy and spare the northern kingdom when they've essentially spit in in God's face, then there's hope for those of us that, I mean, how many of you, you don't have to raise your hand, but y'all know somebody who can just be ugly, who can just be ill all the time, right? Or who can just, right? Don't, don't, y'all keep your hands down. Don't start pointing. Y'all know that. And yet God is so gracious and merciful that he would even send somebody to minister to them. Isn't that good? Isn't that good? All right, so that's Elijah, and that's not where we're going in the sermon or that that particular point. We're going to look at Elijah's story. And you can see the question, so I'll get, I'll go with it here because you can see it now. I want you to ask yourself, God's asking you, I'm asking myself at times, what are you doing here? That's the question that just rings in my mind. And before we get to Scripture, let me just share a few personal stories. I got three personal stories to really drive this home and just set an example here. Hopefully, you'll appreciate them. But uh, when I was in middle school, so this past week was middle school. When I was in middle school, you know, we weren't cool enough like the high schoolers to have a, a dance. There was a high school dance that was, you know, kids got to go to. Uh, But in middle school, you're not old enough for that. Um, So instead, as bizarre as it sounds, instead they would have what's called an eighth grade party. And I don't remember how frequently they were, but, I mean, it was as secular as you could get. I think the thinking was at least if you're going to go out and be stupid, there would be some adults that could supervise. Yeah, I I got eyeballs in the back there. Um, And so, you know, there was this thing called the eighth grade party. And now... My dad was, I'm 
pretty sure he was a pastor at the time. If not, I mean, we, I grew up in church. I cut my teeth on the altars. Like, I was not allowed to go to the eighth grade party. That was worldly. That was not happening. Knew I couldn't even ask. I'd just bring it up, and they'd get upset that somebody even has an eighth grade party somewhere, right? So, you know, I, had, uh, I needed some help with math. So I had uh, stayed after for math lab at different times, and I'm like, you know what? It was after school on a Friday. Who stays after on a Friday for math lab? But I was like, hey, Dad, I got I to gotta stay after for math lab today. And guess where I went? I went to the party. First time I had ever been to the eighth grade party. I know, we were just, whew, it was real bad. We probably had a whole Mountain Dew. I mean, you know. But you know what's funny? I'm, I'm having a good time. Where, you know, there's just kids everywhere. So just some, for context, okay, my graduating class was about 800 kids. Just my class. That's not the whole school. That's just my class. So it was a big school. 800 kids about in my graduating class. So, you know, back that up to middle school where we're, the whole district's together. There was a lot of kids, and we were just having a good time. And the crowd, like, there's so many kids that is shoulder to shoulder. And you're, you know, just walking to one activity or the next, you're, you're bumping people. You can't help it. That's how many. It's like, a, uh, like Disney World or whatever, right, in peak season. Well, I kid you not, I'm bumping, I'm bumping. And, and uh, for whatever reason, I turn around. And you know who I bumped into? Walked right into that man right there. And words didn't need to be said. He didn't have to say a word. I didn't have to say a word. In fact, I thought I might be mute the rest of my life. But in my mind, I'm thinking, what are you doing here? And I bet you he's thinking the same thing. What are you doing here? That was a moment of rebellion, and for the sake of painting a picture and, and making a metaphor here, I'll just, we're going to call that the cave of rebellion. Some of you, and I don't mean to ruffle feathers, but some of you have found yourself in a cave of rebellion. You're in hiding because you know that the things that you're doing are, are not so great. You're ashamed of them, and, and you might be there, and so that's a cave of rebellion, and and here's another story I'll share. I promise we'll get to scripture, and, and I'm going to be respectful of time. But another one is I was driving to see my girlfriend, and it was Eleni, my girlfriend Eleni. Now, the thing was, just some, because of some stuff in her family, like uh, her, her mom had, had gotten this old childhood house on the east side of Flint. Now, 50 years ago, when they li- her grandparents lived there, it was a nice neighborhood. It was nice. Not now, when I was driving around, this was, this was the worst of the worst. Like, it was like a mini Detroit. The east side of Flint, and I specify east side because everybody knew that's where all the crime was, all the drugs. Like, it just, you wouldn't want to be there at any time of the day. But let alone kind of in the evening, driving around, and I was, you know, a cool high school or whatever, so I had my windows tinted super dark, darker than you're supposed to, Right? And so I remember I was driving, uh, I dropped her off at the house, and I'm, I'm headed back home. And, and now you also have to understand where I lived. My parents, we, we're not rich, we're not wealthy. But there was a stigma with the suburb we lived in. We lived in a town called Grand Blanc. And if you, anybody heard that, they'd be like, oh, you live in Grand Blanc. Because there were some millionaires and like, uh, what is the, the golf tour? Uh, the, the, I can't remember the golf tour. 
The Buick Open would come through Grand Blanc. Um, so just there's a lot of millionaires in there. We weren't one of them, but just because they saw Grand Blanc as your address, they're like, oh, you must be rich. Uh, and so I remember I got pulled over, and the cop was like looking at, you know, he asked for my license, and he's like, son, he saw Grand Blanc on there, and I'm in the east side of Flint. Ghetto, drug spot, like, said, son, what are you doing here? I was like, well, my girlfriend, and I don't, I don't think he believed a word I was saying, like, you know, and I, I, I was able to move on, but I'm like, man, I, I dropped my girlfriend off, I'm going home, but he still asked the question, what are you doing here, and I sort of think, it of, think of that cave as a cave of maybe a destination that hasn't been reached yet, he didn't see where I was going, I was going home, I was take, dropping my girlfriend off and going home, that's a cave of an unreached destination, I feel like some of us are in that cave, well, you're holding on to a promise of God, but you just haven't, you haven't quite got there yet. And so it's easy to fall into that cave and get discouraged. And then the last one I'll, I'll, I'll say is, you know, shortly after um, Judah, you know, we had, had passed and had the service for Judah. Um, I was back at work that following week, and I remember the plant manager saw me, and he stopped me where I worked, and he said, Shane, what are you doing here? He was so shocked to see me so soon, and I remember telling him, I'm like, man, I just, like, work is a distraction for me. Like, this, I want to work. Keeps my mind busy, keeps me busy. And for me, and, and for those of you that might be there, there's a cave of heartbreak and discouragement that you can find yourself in. There's, a, there's this cave of fear that you can find yourself in. And I feel like what God wants to pierce through today, if we all would just be willing for the Holy Spirit to move through the Scripture, God is asking you, what are you doing here? If you're in 1 Kings chapter 19, we'll read this together. We find Elijah is asked the same question, but we'll start in verse 9, and yes, you can stand in reverence to God's word, but Elijah chapter 19, verse 1, and this is right after, if you know the story, right after just miracles after miracles that Elijah had been instrumental in, God did the miracles, but Elijah was there as the prophet of God, and and all these prophets of Baal had been shown up and killed, and it was, he was hopelessly outnumbered. You'll have to go back and read the story later. It was amazing. But here we pick up verse 1. And Ahab told Jezebel all that had, uh, Elijah had done, also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and he ran for his life and he went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. So I know you're standing with me, but let's just check this out. He's, this all happened in the northern kingdom, okay? He travels all the way down to Judah, and he's so terrified out of his mind being just one kingdom away isn't enough. Now he goes all the way into the wilderness. He goes even further in verse 4. But he, he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he prayed that he might die. 
and said, is, is enough now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Then as he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him, and he said to him, arise and eat. Then he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water, and so he ate and drank, and he lay down. Verse 7, almost there. And the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. Verse 8, so he arose and ate and drank, and he went in the strength of the food, 40 days and 40 nights as far as Harob, the mountain of God, or which that was an ancient name for Mount Sinai, where Moses had experienced God. In verse 9, this is where we'll, we'll end the reading. And there he went into a cave and spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Can we pray together? Lord Jesus, God, I just need you to move through this time that we have together. I need you to move through this scripture. I need you to get me out of the way. Get anything of Shane or any other distractions out of the way. God, let your scripture pierce through. Let your word pierce through, God, that we would be encouraged. God, you're asking us, what are we doing here? And God, sometimes we're asking ourselves that. But I know that you have an answer for us. You have a directive. You have you have a, a good plan and good thoughts towards us, God, but I pray that we would get a hold of it today, that we'd receive it. We'd be willing to accept what your word has for us today in the name of Jesus. And if you agree, just say amen. You can be seated. So that's the question, and I'll help you along this journey, and we'll dissect some of this, and we'll look at the story, and I love it. But the question God is asking is, what are you doing here? I don't know if you've ever uh, tried to follow GPS. I remember when it first came out, you know, the mini almost looked like the tube televisions. Anybody remember those GPS units? They're really, really deep and, and tiny little tiny two-inch screen. And I remember one time I was trying to get somewhere using that thing, and, and uh, it dropped me off at a, a runway to an airport. I wasn't going to a runway at an airport. I don't know how I got there, and I was lost, and I didn't know how to get where I needed to go. Have you ever felt that way in life? It's not necessarily that you did a whole bunch of things wrong. Maybe that's how you got there. Maybe you made some bad decisions. But you ever just been in a time in life where I really didn't, and if I could go back, it's, I don't know that I could change anything. I just don't know how I got here. Anybody ever been there in life? You're in this cave, and you're like, and God's like, what are you doing here? And you're asking the same question. You're like, God, I, I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing here. I don't know how I got here, and I really, I just, I, what, what? And here we go, Elijah is being asked this question by God, and I want us to take hope and take encouragement from it. See, Elijah had been used in amazing things in the prior chapter, of uh, chapter 18. And here, because of Jezebel, who wants to kill him now, he's afraid. Man, he's afraid. I think the issue for Elijah, and there's a few things we'll work through. The first is, you know, he saw the wrong things. See, Elijah had just gone against, up against King Ahab, the king, right? Like, if you're going to be afraid of anybody, I'd be afraid of the king. That him and 400-something and prophets outnumber him 400-and-something to one. I would have been afraid then. 
But Elijah wasn't afraid then. He was afraid after this when Jezebel said, so there was something about Jezebel and her political influence, her power at the time. If you think of it, it, some scholars think that King Ahab probably married Jezebel for the political power and capital that he would have gained because she brought so much of that to the table. It was almost like a a power play for the kingdom to grow, uh, to be strong and, and have might over others. And so Elijah's looking at the wrong thing. He's looking at Jezebel, and he's like, oh, my gosh, she's so powerful. She, she has all this political capital ability, all these armies that would follow her. He was looking at the wrong thing. How many of you, and this is just like we prayed for Matt, and, and just like even this week, I have to remind myself, man, I'll, get, I'll hear news of something. The diagnosis was this. Or, you know, statistics say this or whatever, fill in the blank. I look at that and I'm like, oh, that is so heavy. That's so much more powerful. It was easy to believe God when I just had a cold. But now when I'm, doctors are flirting with a diagnosis of cancer, it feels different, doesn't it? Elijah was looking at. The wrong things. He saw Jezebel. It says when it's interesting, too, when you look at the words that are used, it says in verse three. And when he saw that. He's looking at the wrong things, he's looking at the power that Jezebel has instead of the power that God has and God just did in chapter 18. But let's not throw stones at Elijah because I'm just like him at times. You know, I've been very open about our adoption journey uh, with Zayden. We're still praying that God heals his, his body and God works things out. And I tell you, there's days, though, I get discouraged just like anybody else, right? Things will be going smooth. And then North Carolina kind of has gone back and forth about sort of the process. It's really complicated working between states. And they're like, hey, sorry, our timeline's going to keep shifting to the right. You know, at a minimum, we're looking at an extra month on top of what was already like a six, seven month process. We're going to add. And so in times like that, I'm like, I'm like, I look at that. I see that and I just I get discouraged. Anybody ever been there? I see what they just told me. I see the timelines going on. I see that, you know, I haven't got a report of a miracle yet. And, and I'm, I see the diagnosis from the doctor that says he's going to need this, that, and the other, right? And I run to the cave like Elijah. So don't throw stones at Elijah. I mean, I'm not because I'm right with him at times. He saw the wrong things. In verse 4, we see he even... He pursued, he sought after the wrong things. Verse 4, and he said, but he himself went away into the wilderness and came and sat down and he prayed that he might die. So first of all, what just blows my mind, he's, he wants his own safety and then he wants God to kill him. Almost as if he would think that God killing him would be painless as opposed to what Jezebel might do to him. But it was all self-preservation. It was it was. The wrong thing to pursue. He should have went to God and said, God, I need you to show that you're bigger than Jezebel. But what did he do? He went to the cave. He's like, God, can you just kill me? Because when she gets a hold of me, it's going to hurt. Can you just take me? Right? 
right? Now, don't look at your spouse. We ain't talking about that. <laughs> Some of you chuckling. No, no, no. Because she gets a hold of me, it's going to hurt, right? He saw after the wrong thing in this moment. A mighty man of God. So here we all get to say Elijah is a man or woman like us, like us. We, we get to relate a mighty man of God. Verse 4, he even says the wrong things. These are just pitfalls. I'm going to help you, and I'll give you good news, I promise. But we're going to learn from Elijah. Verse 4, why don't you lean in and look at that with me. As we read, but, okay, he, he prays that he might die, and he says, It is enough now, Lord. Take my life, for I am no better than my father's. He even says the wrong things. You know what I've heard multiple people say? So if you, if you have told me this, please, I'm not calling you out, because many have said this. And I don't think it's coincidence, but in, in, in times of just private conversation, Different people have said, I don't even feel like I'm saved. They've said, I, I don't even feel like a Christian right now. Can I just make the argument? I almost think that that's what this statement must have been like for Elijah. He is feeling so down and discouraged and afraid and worried. And he's like, God, I'm not even better than my father's. I don't even feel like I'm saved. I don't even feel like a Christian, right? If we translated it, I feel like that's what he's saying. He's saying the wrong things. That's how he got in the cave. Now, what we're interested in is how we get out, right? But doesn't that connect? Doesn't that, I don't know about you, but I read some of these things and it's just like, oh, it, I was like, okay, I feel that one, God. Because God is saying, what are you doing here? Because I never intended for you to live in this cave. I never intended for you to stay here. And I understand how you got here, but what are you doing here? I refuse to stay here. So hear me carefully. It is okay when you find yourself in the cave. It's, it's going to happen. Elijah, it happened to Elijah. It's going to happen to you. It's happened to you. Here's the key. God's asking, what are you doing? It's a verb. Are you going to stay here? Or are you going to go? And that's the question. What are you doing here? My answer ought to be, God, I, I'm, you know what? I was just taking a breather, licking my wounds, having a pity party, and, and I'm done. I'm good. Right? You ever sack somebody on the uh, football field really hard, and then they try to, you know, be the drama king and play it up like they just broke something, and you're like, suck it up, buttercup. And then, you know, and then they get up, and we roll. Right? It's like that. Like, all right. You had your pity party. Get up. Let's play. Right? Man. So what does God do? Well, I like it. Verse 9, he confronts his actions. He says in verse 9, as Elijah goes into the cave, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said, what are you doing here? And so here's what God's doing right now. He's confronting your and I's actions. What are you doing here? That's the question. I like it if we keep reading. God now is charging him with his attitude. Verse 11, then he said, this is God speaking, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And before, behold, the Lord passed by. Listen to this carefully. He passed by, and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains 
and broke the rocks into pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. I'm telling you, there's something powerful right here. And after the wind, the earthquake. But what does it say? But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. And so it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And I'll pause there. God is checking his attitude here. I am absolutely blown away and and just I'm enthralled in the story because do you realize this was Mount Sinai? This is where God had used all of the sights and sounds of what would later be Pentecost. I mean, think about it. Earthquake, fire, wind, all these things. And he had he had spoken to Moses here. And yet now God is like displaying all these things again. He's displaying an earthquake and fire and wind, but yet it specifies God was not in it. God was not in it. Well, why? Why? Well, then it says that he answered in a still, small voice. God's checking his attitude, verses 11 through 13, and I'll help you. Verse 14, we're going to pick up here. God is also confronting his assumptions. And I think God is trying to do that. He's trying to arrest your attention today because you have some assumptions about how God's supposed to get you out of the cave, and we're just wrong. So here we go, verse 14, and he said, this is Elijah responding because God had just asked. He asked him again, what are you doing here? Elijah responded, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, left, and they seek to take my life. You know what's wild to me? His answer didn't change. God's making a point to Elijah. He, he, he displays the earthquake, the fire, the wind. God already asked him. God already got that answer. So what's comforting for me is like, you know, God is trying to get the point across of, hey, your assumptions are wrong on how I'm going to handle this. You thought I was coming in the earthquake, the fire, and the wind just because you saw and heard that I had done that for Moses. But yet now in your situation, I'm this, this, this whisper. Elijah, it's like he wasn't getting the point, and I relate. Can you relate to Elijah? There's times where I'm like, God, I wanted you to show up in the earthquake and the fire and the wind, and I want you to get them, right? You ever said that to God about your enemies? Get them, God. Get them. Pay them back. I don't have to. You will, right? Or whatever it is, or right? But, I, man, a, a man like us here, Elijah, his answer is the same. But God is trying to address his assumptions, and they're wrong. His assumptions are wrong. So what does God do? And, and you could even finish it out. I won't read all of it here. You know, Elijah gives him the same reply. Oh, me. Oh, my. They're trying to kill me. I'm all by myself. And, and this is just like us, right? I'm, I mean, I'm not making light of it, but, but yet if we're, it's easy when we're reading it out of someone else's story. What does God do? He tells him. See, because 
Elijah's assumption was, I've been forsaken. I'm alone. I'm all by myself. And yet God says later in verse uh, 18 or 19, he, 18, he says, There's, he's telling them, yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel. He's like, come on. You feel like you're all by yourself. I have reserved 7,000. He said, so what was that about your assumption that you thought you were all alone? Elijah also assumed that he was finished. That is it. There's no good that can come from me now. This is it. Jezebel wants me, it's over. And I feel like, man, we've made that assumption in our life. We get a diagnosis or we get news. I'm telling you, I've been discouraged. I got that news from North Carolina. They're like, yeah, our timeline's going to extend and it's going to be several more months. And I'm just like, oh, ah, it's no good can come from this. It's not going to turn around. It's not going to be good, right? We ever, man, I found myself in that cave and God is trying to annihilate these assumptions. He's like, look, you, these assumptions are wrong. I want to speak to you in the whisper. I want you to know that you're not alone, that I've got 7,000 in Israel. I, I've got you covered. I, and then we say, we say like Elijah that we feel like we're finished. God, would you just take me now? But yet Elijah would be instrumental in raising up Elisha. There was much more to come for Elijah's story if you keep reading on. Man, more miracles were to come. But in this cave, he felt like it's over. Has anybody ever been there? And so that's just my question to you. God's asking you, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? God had to arrest Elijah's attitude, arrest his assumptions so that he could lead Elijah to what's next. So what do we take from this then? Well, we got to get our attitude in check. We've got to get our assumptions in line with God and what he says. And then what I love is God doesn't sit here and pander to Elijah's pity party. He says, follow with me here. Then the Lord says to him, go. I mean, the first word, it's like, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, and so now what he's doing, he's giving him instructions. He's like, oh, enough of this. I, and then he tells him later about the 7,000. I feel like that's what God's telling us. If you're in one of these caves, you're in a cave. Now, you may have gotten yourself in it. It might be because of your own rebellion, or it could be just because of disappointment and discouragement. I don't know how you got here. All I know is that God is asking you, what are you doing here? Because he doesn't intend for you to live there. I will not live here in this cave. I will hold on to the promises of God, regardless of how foolish I look or regardless of how long it takes. I would rather die believing that God is going to move in these promises while I still can see than to live in this cave. I don't want to live in this cave. I can't. I, I've just, I'm not willing to make my residence here. And you ought to be that way. We need to seek the Holy Spirit in our lives. Would you stand to your feet? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your scripture. I thank you for your...